welcome to Justice Rising, a podcast where we explore how we can work towards liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. On this week's episode, I interview Marcos Gonzalez. Marcos and I sit down and talk about education equity. Marcos is the Director of Trauma-Informed Education at Chicago Jesuit Academy. Well, hi, Marcos. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's yeah, it's great to have you here. You're working out in Chicago, but you were out, were you out on the West Coast before? Yeah, so I've kind of bounced around a bit. Originally from Los Angeles, and prior to arriving here in Chicago, I was in Phoenix. I had worked and studied in Chicago before, uh, which is part of what motivated me to return. I came out to Chicago initially for my master's in social work. One of the things that I love about the city of Chicago, I feel like that my, my education happened in in the city, right? Beyond the classroom. And I think Chicago as a city, I think has a lot to teach me and I think has a lot to teach us in the context of, particularly as I think about just kind of education and kind of the inequities and the injustices that we can look through like kind of the historical lens of what what our nation has faced in terms of kind of just the you know, the ways in which kind of racial, racialized housing policies kind of created mm-hmm. here. And we see its impact on communities and on schools. And so it's a stark way to be able to kind of see injustice and then to learn how do we, for me, like, how do I respond? How do I find myself? And so it's, yeah, when I was studying here, it was part of the realization that, I mean, these are realities across the United States. This is not unique to the city of Chicago, but the the stark black and white, quite literally. The, uh, that the segregation kept... is pretty, pretty severe, pretty obvious, too. Mm-hmm. Where growing up in Los Angeles, it, it didn't, I mean, you know, the we have segregation, but, you know, kind of de facto in a lot of ways and within our school systems as well. You know, Los Angeles being a predominantly Latinx city right. uh, it, it can especially as someone who is latinx like i, I saw myself everywhere and i didn't see as clear the divide because you can see yourself in so many different facets in so many different ways my experience coming to chicago was like the first time seeing that like glass ceiling really drop for people who look like me and when that's my experience as an adult i can only imagine what this experience is for you know young people who are going through their education system and and trying to envision and imagine what was the most formative justice experience that you would, what really uh, shaped you getting into this work? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I could share that, you know, my parents, uh, farm workers, my dad immigrated from Mexico and they were farm workers in the Central Valley. I think about their lives and Cesar Chavez is someone that's really important to me uh, because of the work that he did advocating for basically the rights that my grandparents and my family members, you know, benefited from um, and the injustices that they kind of faced working in the fields. You know, my grandmother worked in the fields until she was, you know, not physically able to, and then she moved to work in the canneries. And, the, and so um, like, you know, a legacy of having uh, family members benefit from activists and folks, you know, working for, you know, greater dignity of all. I think has definitely been something that shaped me from my childhood and just something that, you know, we talked about growing up as kids. Um, 
and then I think, you know, I, I studied uh, at a Jesuit school and, and I think my Jesuit education was really formative. I think at my time I studied at Loyola Marymount University and began kind of connecting a lot of dots of what like my childhood was and then like what that means for what I do with my life that goes beyond just, you know, getting a job and really kind of looking for radical change. And I think where I probably experienced it the most as an undergrad was I was at, in Los Angeles working at the Los Angeles Catholic Worker. This was kind of early 2000s when, you know, kind of just the ways in which Los Angeles, Los Angeles's response to homelessness was a lot of criminalization. Um, right. and, and LA was in a process of wanting to revitalize by downtown and displace, um, and, and by displacing was, you know, criminalizing and, you know, kind of contributing to the system of mass incarceration. So my eyes were beginning to open and especially to see folks, you know, at the Catholic Worker, like, you know, Jeff Dietrich and, and Catherine Morris, who, you know, have been, you know, there for so long and kind of models. And then to take like ideas that Dorothy Day and Peter Morin had and like, right. sort of how, how can we live more, you know, communally? How can we live more radically? So that kind of inspired me to join the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I said, like, can I taste this way of being in the world in a different way? And then as a Jesuit volunteer, I got into education. And that probably was like the, the match that kind of ignited a sense that education can be a pathway for justice if we really can reimagine. But in a lot of ways, unlearn education as a process of unlearning all the things that right. miseducated us. Right. Mis- miseducation, for sure. I-, I feel like we're at a point in our society where we're doing an undoing and unlearning of false history. Mm-hmm. We don't understand our or recognize our real history of our country. I think it takes so much capacity to be able to imagine and and to, and to kind of dream anew. And, and it's been something, you know, I wrote a little bit about this in the article about how like the pandemic has invited an opportunity for us to reimagine schools. No one you know, went into education thinking like, oh, we're, we're going to have our entire school year happen online, right? But all of a sudden, right, w- within a matter of weeks, we've reimagined the way that schools look. So as to think that like we can't reimagine, like when, when forced into a moment of creativity. And so I, I agree with you that I think for so long, we've been stuck in these patterns, right? And because, you know, whether it's for, you know, kind of the sake of kind of just power and and kind of folks feeling powerless to be able to change or whether, um, and and by folks, I mean like educators or administrators, you know, you know, whatever, whoever is the ones determining and creating, but the fact that these systems aren't accidental, right? That our education system, our curricula, like all of these uh, dynamics that we live in and eat and breathe and feed our children, like have had intentional, uh, you know, components in them that benefit, uh, you know, white upper class communities and and disadvantage, you know, uh, black, indigenous, and Latinx communities, you know, um, you know amongst many others. And so I think um, that that barrier of kind of how do we get over uh, that sense of like, um, like the fact that like the system exists as it is right now, how to get to a place of reimagining. And one of the things that I think is like, when we feel isolated, when we feel siloed, when we feel like um, dis- disconnected, um, that 
that is, is a way that kind of power maintains control of this system. And I think one of the things that I've been really inspired by this moment of kind of collective consciousness that's being raised in oh, yeah. collective consciousness, yeah. And and that, you know, kind of the summer of, you know, uh after the death of Brianna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, um, kind of raising this collective consciousness again for many, which has been present for many too, right? But the fact that it's now um a common place for schools and school administrators to have conversations for for educators who have been dreaming of more just education systems to be able to point to the letters that many school administrators wrote or the you know corporations wrote i think there's a lot of opportunity if we can seize it that's a great point i you know like you said that collective consciousness and i immediately thought of something that i read yesterday about the collective trauma that's parallel to that and I feel like and I and this is something that I've been wondering as an educator do you feel like because you mentioned this a little bit in your article about having to self-regulate like the the emphasis of like regulation as a as a um, adult and regulating your body and being in in tune with your body so that you're able to um, work with your students. And I'm just wondering about this. I feel like a lot of educators are going to, in a sense, navigate that collective trauma with their students. Do you think that's true? Oh, entirely. Yeah. Um, especially as folks are entering into the building again for the first time. Um, and I think the, the fact that we've all experienced this trauma in some capacity, I think, requires that heightened kind of consciousness awareness of self and then also communally. Again, it kind of goes to like, what systems do we have in place that we can like support one another, right? Support ourselves. And the way that I think about, especially for us uh, as like, as adults, like to ask students to do this on their own, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so much to be able to kind of like, you know, like we, we as adults have the capacity to be able to model it for our students. But if we're not in a place where we can do that ourselves, you know, like, um, and I think there's, there's power in, in community, there's power in being able to do this together to know that we're not alone. And I think that's a really, I think, critical component of the healing that will be necessary for us as a, as a community is to be able to, to be with one another in a way, and, and perhaps not even physically, I mean, as we can have to continue to, to socially distance, but to find ourselves in, in a way acknowledging this experience within ourselves and I and I I, you kind of named it too like acknowledging how it's it rests within our bodies right Mm -hmm. um that that we have embodied this even if you know we haven't been interacting with one another and be in tune with our our bodies um and then and then to how how do we guide our students to do that as well like and I feel like uh oftentimes we can be really distant we can be stuck in our heads and and kind of try to think through that, that healing and, you know, like, well, I'll just talk to someone and do therapy. But I really think, you know, there's some great thinkers out uh, that have really been kind of redirecting us towards our bodies. I think of um, the book, you know, How the Body Keeps the Score um, mm. is one that kind of one author that he kind of draws us to ourself. Another great book that I've been reading is uh, My Grandmother's Hands by. Uh, I'm uh, reading that too. It's isn't it so good. It's so powerful. So thinking about my grandmother's hands and the invitation that, you know, Resma uh, Menachem has to like return to our bodies and the ways in which the 
whether it's racialized trauma, whether it's, you know, you know, an experience of violent trauma, like the many different ways that we experience trauma, like it's held in our bodies. And so to return to our bodies, and again, like the, the nature of a, a classroom, right? It's part of this return to the classroom as we're, you know, kind of moving into this next stage of this pandemic. Like if we're not in, in experiencing our bodies, like the potential risk that we have, whether as adults or as students of, of being dysregulated, I think, it, it demands our attention because the truth is, is that, you know, you know, the school to prison pipeline is still present, right? right. We have, you know, kind of an over-representation over of uh, police in schools, in BIPOC communities, uh, schools. It's like this, all this dysregulation, you know, can only uh, cause more damage, trauma and violence within our communities and so as educators, I feel like the, the moment that we have is like, we need to all kind of slow down, pause, check ourselves, take a moment to quite literally breathe. And, and what I love what, uh, especially what Resma Menachem says in, in like kind of this collective moment to like just pause and breathe together. Right. Um, right. That has so much potential. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about the book it, that I, that I didn't realize about myself before is I feel like I feel like I was very disassociated with my body. And I think that's very much part of whiteness. That's because I feel like whiteness is rooted in individualism as opposed to collectivism. And I think if you, if you're working and breathing um, and healing as a collective versus as an individual, like as long as like you, you made the point of like how much we're in our heads. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with, whiteness and capitalism and all these systems that are kind of insular versus like wider and collective. I I feel like if I had, and this is just my own thinking, but I thought if I was raised in a different context, if I was born into a different context, would I be more in tuned with my body? I don't know. You know, obviously I don't know these answers to these questions, but I, I feel like the less you, you named it pretty well, like the less in tuned we are with ourselves, the less we we regulate our emotions and our body. I think the most likely we are to be reactionary, and I think part of the reason why we jump to these you named it well the incarceration rates, criminalization of folks, like for example, with homelessness and displacement. I think we have these like quick reactions and we we look at like police officers that have fatally shot BIPOC people. They're not self-regulating. They're not trained to, to settle into their body. We're not socially conditioned to respond in a embodied way, right? We're trained to like basically kicked into almost like survivor mode. Like it heightens all of our flight, fight and flight and flee bottle like those kind of bodily responses without the processing the consciousness the awareness i think that's like a lot of what's missing in our our society is like if we moved away from like a very narrow insular individualistic thought processes and moved into a um, more integrated process i think we'd have a better a better system yeah no i agree with you so much and you know, I think the that way in which we have this overemphasis on our brain, which I think kind of, again, I think contributes to the ways in which like white supremacy culture has taken hold of a lot of the ways that we move about that, like 
de-emphasizes body, de-emphasizes arts, de-emphasizes, you know, and elevates, you know, other other ways of being, right? Which in in, in its sense of equity, it's, I mean, these are all incredible gifts that we have, but when our, you know, kind of current economic system is valuing, you know, particular ways of being over others, you know, we're essentially de-emphasizing them. Again, I hope that I have, uh, and, you know, kind of hearing about like the the elements of Renaissance that happened after the pandemic of 1918, right? You know, kind of the roaring 20s that came because there was a sense of kind of processing, like perhaps the Renaissance of education that we're, that I dream of and hope of is that like all of the things that we're talking about that we know are, are, are so good for our students are so helpful for us as humans. Like perhaps this is the movement that we're moving into. And it, I feel really privileged to be at a moment, right? To have a role where I can be dreaming uh, around, around what can we do when we center healing as the, the leading component uh, in, in the ways that we receive each other in the classroom because then we're also going to enhance the learning. It's not like we're saying learning is not important, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, kind of a common saying that we had at, when I was working at Homeboy Industries was like, hurt people hurt people, especially right now as we're all, you know, kind of living into this collective trauma. It's like, if we don't pause to heal, we're also not going to be able to get to those, you know, really important elements that we want, which is, you know, to be able to learn, to be able to flourish. But do you think healing is going to be the answer for dismantling this white supremacy culture that's in our education system? I think it's a component of it. It's a step in the direction. Um, and and I think, you know, kind of leaning from, you know, Resma Menekin's work in, you know, my grandmother's hands, I think, like, that's an essential component to, which is an ongoing process, right? Um, as long as we're in this system that's harming us, um, if we're not healing, um, we, I don't think we can move forward, right? And the image that often kind of comes to mind for me is a broken bone in a splint. In a splint. Hmm. If, if you have a broken arm or, or a broken leg and it's not set properly, uh, it'll heal, but it will heal, you know, uh, not well, you'll have to kind of reset it, right? To go through that process of, you know, having something broken and then needing to reset it. And you have to literally break the bone again in order to do it, to get it, you know, set right. Um, and if while you're in that process of healing, you have to move slowly, you have to allow time, you have to kind of give yourself the capacity to allow it to do what it needs to do before you can kind of put pressure on it and do and and do the things this image for me in terms of thinking about our systems as they are right like my hope is that, and and truthfully you know I, I i've been you know kind of learning a lot from bettina love uh who wrote the book um we want to do more than survive i mean her work has just been really helpful in kind of thinking about an abolitionist framework in education um but kind of her approach is saying to kind of really kind of reimagine the whole system. Let's start fresh. So like, you know, the fact that like the, the bone is broken, we know that the bone of education right now is broken. But if if we do minor minor changes, right, we might set some things, but the bone, the bone might still not be set properly. Or we're probably going to have to break it again and again and again until we give ourselves the time. And so I think 
you know, as you ask this question of like, where does healing take, where does healing fit into this process? I think it, it requires us to kind of give it some time. And, and I think it's for me, like the, uh, you know, essential urgency of now, of like really wanting to see this, these changes take place. My big hope is that the pandemic kind of allows us to return with this new vision, this new reimagination, like the, the breaking has taken place. The pandemic that kind of hit pause on schools for the last year, and a half, you know, now going on a year and a half is that opportunity to say like, we, we hit, we hit the breaking point and now let's reset in a way that's going to allow us to heal in a new way. You can use the phrase abolitionist, abolition teaching. Is that what you said? I was wondering if you can break that down. What does that look like? What does that mean to you? As a continued learner, I definitely would reference Latina Love's work, her book, We Want to Do More Than Surviving. She's really, I think the, the notion of abolition, right, which is to do away with our, our carceral state and how one as an educator kind of participates in that and or works actively to undo it. I think, you know, we've heard a lot of in, in conversations around abolition in terms of kind of defunding the police. And there are, you know, different pathways. Some are, you know, take away funding from the police and, and invest in other components. Some are do away with the police entirely, right? And so I kind of, me as, as kind of a continual student, right? The, the vision that I have is schools that do not have police, right? That we kind of can, have community schools that are true communities of safety that are rooted in restorative justice practices, right? Schools that are created in an equitable way that don't kind of emphasize kind of exams or these kind of high stakes tests that kind of contribute to kind of just feeding into a definition or a way of thinking about what we know is not actually assessing uh, students are giving students the capacity or the space in in its essence, right? It's 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 kind of a complete reimagination of the way in which we are currently doing school, and and reimagining the way that we discipline, reimagine the way that we kind of exist as community, right? Um, such that it's not a kind of it's it's never about taking a student out of the community uh, or taking a student out of the school. Or saying that this, you know, person is is irredeemable and so therefore cannot be uh, here, but begins rooted in kind of a sense of like, how do we hold one another? Um, how was the responsibility? And and I think particularly from this trauma informed approach of being able to say, how do we center that when something you know happens in a school that requires attention, that we come from a place of reflecting on what is what is this person need right and what, what were they not receiving from us as a school or as a community or from you know the wider community that we can respond with that love compassion and care as opposed to removal separation that's a good point the uh, sitting on that that image of, re, of removal because i think that the, the first thing that you're taught when you're like at least i was taught to, in terms of like disciplining um, or classroom management is to remove that child from that space. And I just remember thinking that really bothers me, but I didn't know how to address it until I was working in the school that worked in this is a school in Philadelphia that worked with conscious discipline. And it was like, rather than um, removing the child, it was giving the child the option if they felt like they couldn't regulate most 
kid, let's face it, most kids, like their tiny little bodies and your brain is not even developed until you're in your mid twenties. Most of them can't regulate themselves. Right. So they need this space that in, in a sense, given a choice to kind of remove themselves from, um, not in, in a place where they're no longer in a space of belonging or, um, connection or community, but just like take a breath and reclaim, like kind of, in a sense, it kind of gave kids like a, a space to reclaim, um, through the space or themselves through own taking ownership and saying, you know, I, I addressing, I need like, um, these are my needs, naming needs. And I think that's part of what's missing sometimes in education and in our other systems. Right. And I think when kids don't, um, and even adults, like often, uh, um, when we respond out of re- reaction or like a knee jerk reaction, it does, it's speaking to a larger issue that's within us, right. And undress or unmet need. And a lot of that stuff goes back to, um, wounds that form in our childhood. And I think, I think that, that sometimes I think that's like what we miss, or often it's what we, we miss. We don't look at like, what is that person really communicating? Is it that person needs and desires? And like, how do we create a space of belonging? How do all these more restorative and connective and reconciling and healing movements amplify youth voices and empower voices? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, what comes to mind is like one that we, we cannot do this work alone, right? And And I think in particular, the danger for me is do this alongside our students, to not do this alongside our community, right? And just as much as I'm, if I'm, if I'm dreaming, if I'm dreaming alone, I'm also dreaming for others. And that's one of the things I I often think, like, you can't dream for others, but you can dream with others. And, and when I think about, like, this moment and the opportunity that we can, like, you know, to really, like, center youth voice and ask, like, it's one of the things that we do within our, you know, talking circles are, we have kind of our own peace circles here at our school is we, kind of allow the students to be the, the reimaginers and say like, you know, when we return, what, what, what would you like to see? What, what don't you want to see? What hasn't worked? And to kind of cultivate spaces where we can collectively dream um, and, and allow those, you know, our students' voices, the, the youth voice to be, you know, elevated in a way and prioritized in a way because they're unencumbered. They haven't been as miseducated as us, right? Um, and they have, they have so much to offer us and so much opportunity. The other thing that I think about is, you know, as, as adults, again, to not do it alone, like what, what colleagues do I have or, or, you know, who within my school or within my community, um, can I dream with? Um, because again, when, when, when I have this dream by myself, um, like I, I can often feel isolated, especially in this moment of pandemic, but I mean, I'm so grateful for moments like this, you know, to be able to engage in conversation with others who, you know, share in these visions, these desires, and and this learning, like kind of for me, like this co-learning process, because I'm still very much on the journey. Being able to do it with others has been super encouraging for me and, and inspiring for me to know, okay, so that perhaps I'm not going to be able to change the whole system tomorrow as much as I wish that I could, right? But with within you know, my school, like, you know, the, the, the group of us that gather together to talk about, you know, these elements, we, we can focus in on, you know, like, you know, this week, this month, this quarter, this year, 
you know, these are the components of things that we can do and ensuring that like kind of that this thread does not end so that we don't burn out. Because I think ultimately, like we need to we need to ensure that we're caring for ourselves communally and then within that kind of sense of self-regulating, that sense of self-identifying kind of that body awareness so that we can continue going. Right. Like this is we're we're, we're in a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm. I think that's a great point. I think I think we often forget that any kind of systemic change require, or even individual change, right? When I think about my own personal goals, I'm still, do, I feel like I, in a way, I'm still doing some of the same goals that I did 10 years ago, work, because some of that work is just ongoing, like you mentioned. And I think it's really important for people to to remember that change isn't overnight, just like oppression didn't happen overnight. It was slowly incremental so to undo these systems it takes time. And so I, I, I think it's like this ongoing learning, like you mentioned. And I really like the terms that you use that like, you know, dreaming with someone that you're a co, like, what did you, what word did you use? Was it co-learner? Co-learner. I really like that because then it kind of keeps you on an, on an equal like playing field as opposed to having this like hierarchy and but really your learning doesn't stop even as an educator so I really like that that language that you used and I try to I mean I I am I feel like very averse and immune to kind of any notion that I get identified as an expert because I'm far from right Mm. I think I'm only an expert of my life just as much as my students are experts in their and, and so like when we go into the classroom, we are co-learners with our students, allowing them to be experts of their lives and draw from their experience. And that's, you know, I think to be in that space of, of kind of entering any, any, whether it's a presentation or whether a conversation, I mean, we carry that sense of humility, I think offers so much to the, to that, which who we're in relationship with and really it roots us in relationship. Right. That's important. Well, thank you so much for um, this time that you gave us and sharing all these wise pieces of of information and insight. <laughs> I really appreciate it. It's borrowed wisdom from many thinkers, like I mentioned. I mean, I kind of named a lot of authors and, and just really important people. But I've been so grateful to just have the opportunity to engage this conversation and, and grateful for the work that you all do. Well, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a work of Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center in Seattle, Washington. IPJC is sponsored by 24 religious congregations. We act for justice in the church and in our world. If you would like to see more work like this, go to ipjc.org and consider supporting our mission. Make sure to hit that subscribe button for our podcast and to hear more conversations like this wherever you listen. Tune in next time.